Wow, it is good to be together and it's good to declare uh, some of this. I, I need the discipline of gratitude. I, I, I need the narrative of accusation and negativity uh, to, to be interrupted in my life so that we could. I heard a great illustration about gratitude. Which is, go for it. <laughs> so it, it, I heard this illustration and um, it, it, was, it was like gratitude is like wielding a sword. Sounds weird, stay with me, stay with me. It's like wielding a sword. <laughs> along your path towards your goal and you're going to have vines and weeds and things sprouting up and gratitude is your sword that you cut through all the underbrush and all the things that are blocking your path towards your goal so if you think of it that way it's our gratitude that helps clear the path being grateful that should be like one of our rhythms oh wait <laughs> it is good news uh thanks b uh that, that was a good word. Um, hey, I, uh, I had the privilege of being a part of, we're trying to be good tenants here, and so there was a little bit of a work day yesterday morning, and so there was a few of us that came out. Uh, we got a break in the weather, and here's the thing. You probably pulled up this, morning, or this afternoon and realized this looks like it always looks. But we actually spent a morning here cleaning up, and what we decided was it was just a trim. It wasn't a makeover. Uh, it was so overgrown because of all the rain. Uh, and when we got done, we're like, yeah, that doesn't look like anyone did anything. Uh, but we had some rad helpers uh, that were a part of this experience. Uh, and. Um, uh, super cute kids with lots of growth on the trees, and so we tend to think of it as like a neck beard that's overwhelmed and it was starting to grow down, so we just trimmed it up, but we didn't get to clean out the hairy ears. Um, uh, and I love this picture because um, kids with power tools, they grow up to work at Home Depot and want to spend their weekends there. Uh, but this was, uh, it was a fun morning, and, and here's the thing. Um, there's like five congregations that meet at Ascension Lutheran Church, uh, and uh, Mission Hills was the only renters that showed up. I don't want to play the I'm better than you card, but I don't mind saying uh, we showed up well. Uh, but, uh, and, and I think I even have the poison oak to, to prove it. Uh, as I, I was like, hey, that's itchy this morning. Uh, but we had a good time. Hey, speaking of good time, uh, in like two short weeks, we are going to the Frio River uh, in what is known as faux camping. We have cabins, really cool cabins, right on the river. I'm trying my hardest not to over-program, but we wanna give uh, a chance to really practice community where you don't get cell service and you get to be fully present with friends, with family. Uh, and, and so uh, they've got some cool little excursions and hikes. I would, I'll send out an email, but I'd encourage you to maybe bring, if you've got a little razor scooter or little bikes, there's like this little cul-de-sac where the kind of the Frio bends, and we've got like 10 cabins all around, and there's a couple of families in each cabin, and uh, we'll... someone to share a cabin with. Oh, oh, don't, oh, that's, that, that's like, that's like being the ones who are... That's like sitting there and no one will sit at your lunch table. We don't want to make that awkward for you, but uh, uh, we'll pray for friends. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we like to say sometimes church looks like worship and sometimes it looks like tribe and sometimes it looks like 
community camping on the Frio. Uh, and so there is some fire pit activity. There will be some uh, kind of shared meals together. Uh, there will even be possibly some football going on on Saturday evening because there's a big lodge up, a, uh, up the hill and we're going to hike up there. And uh, if, if you felt like you couldn't do a weekend without Alabama and LSU playing football or something like that. <laughs> Alabama, Alabama Mafia, be quiet. Um, but get your, get your sign up. I think we're like a cabin left or maybe a cabin and a half uh, because the archers need friends. Um, uh, <laughs> um, the other thing that happened, I want to kind of highlight, uh, um, we have uh, something that sprouted up uh, over the last few months uh, and it got to take kind of its next step and that is something known as the uh, Archer Collaborative. And so uh, B and Jess are creating a ministry together. Uh, oops, I hate when I do that. I push buttons when I don't mean to. Um, why don't you guys just say a word about what happened on Tuesday night uh, this week as you guys kind of take a next step together. Very cool. Well, we're excited for you and uh, excited for kind of what doors open up uh, next. So let us now, with our teachers, with Miss Kristen in the back, we're going to go line it up. We're not going to have any premature departures. We're waiting. We're waiting. <laughs> let us now send our kids out to continue uh, with their time of worship with this blessing. And all together we'd say, may... Lord bless you and continue in your worship. I'm going to go with a B this week. Okay. <laughs> Bye to the B students. Rad. Uh, uh, let's see, where was I? Oh, yeah. Well, um, Jim Collins, who wrote this, uh, he's written lots of books, but. Uh, he, he did this, he had told a story in, the, in his book, um, Oh, the Mighty Fall, How the Mighty Fall, um, tells the story in August of 02, he was running with his wife uh, in the Rockies, and his wife is more of a runner than he is, and he tells this story, and he kind of tells on himself, but he makes a very, uh, a very acute point that hit home with me, and he says, uh, my wife is much more of the avid runner than I am, but they were going to do a run that started uh, at like 8,000 feet and climbed to 11,000 feet. So it was a steep climb, uh, altitude, you know, all that. And he gets to about 11,000 feet and they're running through the trees. Uh, but his wife just kind of peels off and he sort of uh, capitulates to the idea that 
I'll walk it from here. And um, as he comes through this clearing, he sees his wife up ahead and the, the trail goes up and it's like a switchback. And he could see her red sweatshirt just going on ahead. And he's looking at her with this great picture of amazing health as he's sort of like, you know, getting winded and stuff. And here's the point is that it wasn't two months later that his wife was diagnosed with cancer and which led to a double mastectomy. And he's reminded of that picture running above the tree line with this thin air and her powering way ahead of him and going, we have no idea what it means to be healthy and what it means to be sick. I had one doctor friend say to me, you know, just because you're not hurting doesn't mean you're not sick. I thought, okay, point taken. And I might even add to that emotionally, spiritually, just because we're not in crisis doesn't mean we're not in danger. Just because things are surviving or managing doesn't mean there's a profound need. And so what Jim Collins is raising is this idea that the criteria that we use for health will impact the way we see our need for help. And especially being able to seek the cure that I think can only be found in God alone. So let me ask you, how are you doing? How's it going? Because the knee-jerk reaction is, I'm good, I'm fine. And if we really want sympathy, we'll go, oh, I'm just so busy. But other than that, we don't have an authentic reply for, how are you doing? But when we start to evaluate what the need for health is, we probably should mine a little bit deeper. Uh, and so um, we tend to hold on to the thing that says, I'm fine, unless we're in crisis, unless the wheels have come off. I've noticed that in my line of work, I usually get people at the 11th hour in their marriages. I usually get people in the idea of they've already kind of walked away from the faith. But rarely do I get people coming to me saying, Pastor, I want to grow more. What's some good reading that I can apply? What's some good practices that I can do? It's just sort of a reactionary way. And as long as things are going fine, I'm not going to take too much initiative. But the question is, is are you really fine? Well, I'm fine because I've got money in the bank. I'm fine because, well, I've got my health. I'm, I'm fine because my kids are safe. I'm fine because I've got my education. I'm fine because... Really? Are you, are you really fine? Because I feel like we have this false sense of security, this false sense of, uh, of um, confidence. Uh, and again, the reason I bring this up isn't to make you feel bad, it's, it's to bring up our need for the cure, for the hope that I think is found in God in God alone. And so there's a verse that comes to us out of second, uh, uh, Second, let's see, where did it go? Maybe I didn't include it in there. Second Corinthians uh, 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is, that we might display to a world who is profoundly anxious, to a world that's in need of hope, to a world that feels desperate, nothing less than the living Christ. 
hope, generosity, compassion, uh, coursing through our veins, pouring from our lips, uh, reflected in how we steward all of God's blessings so that we can make the glory of God known. And oh, by the way, that it can form Christ in us even more. So now, how are we doing? Because that is the question on the table. Last week, we began a series, uh, and, and it's entitled Shema, which comes from an ancient Hebrew prayer that is a fixed time prayer, kind of like a standing appointment with God. They would pray it in the mornings and in the evenings. It's a familiar prayer that you will recognize coming to us out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. But it was a fixed time prayer because, and here's the point of the series and the prayer, they wanted a way to practice the presence of God. That doesn't have to be an abstract term. That doesn't have to be something vague. That's actually something extremely concrete and really tangible. And so the idea that we can practice the presence of God is something that the people of God have done for centuries and ages. And this prayer is something really important that I think Protestant churches never actually study. I've never heard a message or a series done on the Shema. But the Shema was a way that they would teach their kids so that it would be their first words and their last words of each day of how to recognize the preeminence of God in their life as the source, even in the midst of oppression, even in the midst of crisis, even in the midst of doubt and uncertainty, in the midst of blessing and richness and pleasure, God as the source. Man, if we can begin to have an awareness of God's presence in, in both the highs and the crisis, I think we would really have a, a sense of, uh, of, of hope and knowing that the nearness of God, even in, am I getting my way? So this passage out of Deuteronomy is something that I want to look at tonight. I encourage you, maybe jot a few notes. I have some places on the bulletin tonight. If you want to open up the app, I have the outline included on our app under resources. Um, But if you have your Bibles, look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. In a little bit, we're going to look at two chapters later in Deuteronomy 8. But in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we have this picture of the Shema. And the Shema is this invitation for the practice of the presence of God because more than just sound waves piercing your ear, the Shema calls the people to listen and to obey because real listening takes both effort and action. This is the practice of the presence of God. And he says, hear, O Israel, and last week we talked about listen, O people of God. And we talked about the discipline needed for listening and the space we give for listening. And just because we've heard something doesn't mean we've actually responded to it. And he says, hear, O people of God, which is a great way to start. Sometimes we think of prayer as this sort of shopping list to God. Dear Jesus, give me all these things, help all these things, bless all these things. And he says, here's the start of the prayer. Hero people of God, listen. Because sometimes prayer is asking for things and, and sometimes prayer is not asking for things. And all of a sudden we're starting to peel mind for a deeper sense of God's presence. But then he says, 
The Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's where I want to camp out tonight, but let me give you at least the first part. The, the Shema is broken up into three passages of scripture. For this series, we're just taking about five weeks to go through this first stanza of the prayer. But he says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. Okay, I'll try. Um, you know, but easier said than done. And then he says, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them upon your children, which is the same as saying, disciple your kids in the way of Jesus. Pass on a living faith. What it looks like to follow after God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. So that's why we've created these set of spiritual practices at Mission Hills called rhythms. So we can have a tangible way that we're imparting a living faith to those closest to us. But he says in this word to the people of God, impress these on your children. And then he gives four times during the day. He talks about, uh, talk about them when you sit at home, which we talked about as being a meal time. Talked about when you walk along the road, maybe a taxi time, uh, when you lie down, maybe a bedtime, and when you get up, a morning time. And then he gets very overt. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them to your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your great gates. We have a little bit of a project in the works so that we can have a display at home of what our rhythms are so that we can practice a living faith. That's sort of a cliffhanger. That's a tease. But I've got a great artist friend who's helping me come up with something that you can begin to hang on your doorpost, so to speak. But we'll get to that. Let me just start by saying the Shema, the Lord is one. So what does he mean when he says the Lord is one? So let me start generically. Now, like Judaism, Christianity is a, a monotheistic faith, comma, three in one. Now, this is what separates Christianity from Judaism, is that we're going to recognize the threefold manifestation of God in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, why is this significant in the earliest of days is that this was a significant departure for the people of God to declare that there's actually one God because there was the belief that deities were localized deities were all territorial so if you came from the land of Canaan and went down to Egypt you were now under the territory of a different God and so all cultures and all peoples and all territories had different gods there's a new proclamation says the Lord our God the Lord is one major theological shift in creation to say no 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 there is one God there's not a God of fertility and a God of the sea there's not a God of 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 the soil no 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 there is one God overall and so he starts by helping people and the Hebrews were making this kind of departure which was really unique in the ancient world now Here's what gets really significant, um, is that the Trinity has a way of setting up the character and nature of God as being unchanging and consistent. Um, and why that's important is because when we say that God is unchanging and God is consistent, that means that God can never not be less than God. God will be who God is. God cannot be less than his nature and his character. The problem with that is there are times about the attributes and the character and the nature of God 
that feel in opposition. Do they not? How can a God who's so loving also be a God who chooses judgment? How can a God who chooses to exercise justice also exercise mercy? How is that even possible? They're saying the Lord is one. Now, I've got to give you an example. Uh, Last week was this thing in Austin called, uh, it was a week ago, Austin Think Week. It was sponsored by um, an uh, apologetic group of Ravi Zacharias team. They had about 30 smaller group meetings throughout Austin. And I found out about one, um, unfortunately, it was on a Thursday morning at 10 a.m., but it was in a mosque in North Austin. So I thought, well, this will be a fun field trip. I kind of carved out time, and I wanted to go and hear what was being said. And the format of it was, and unfortunately, there weren't really any Muslims. It was supposed to be a dialogue Certainly not a debate, but it was supposed to open up some conversation. But uh, when you walk into this mosque, there's a divide down the room. And so all the women over here were wrapped in a headscarf and long sleeves. And there was probably about 12 men. But there was a sheik or someone educated representing the Muslim faith. And then this other gal who worked in the Ravi Zacharias team. And she presented for 10 minutes. And then there was this conversation. Um, it started slow, but it got really interesting. Well, in, in the conversation, this sheikh, who was really educated, um, gave this example of when he was visiting the Middle East. And he said, um, well, there was a 20-something-year-old man that uh, had killed another 20-something-year-old man. And the man that died was actually financially supporting uh, his aging parents. And so, under Sharia law, Uh, the parents were given three options. They could choose to pardon, they could choose mercy, or they could choose a version of indentured servitude, meaning you killed our livelihood, now you provide for us till we're dead. That was their three options. Well, they they wanted justice. Uh, And so this is televised in Iraq or wherever it was, uh, and he was watching this on TV. So they bring in a noose, and they literally hang this guy up, and he says, oh, by the way, and this is why we have such a low crime rate. I was like, uh, I choose a religion not based on fear alone. But the, the, they brought in a noose, and were stringing this guy up, and kind of at the last minute, these parents, no, wait, we choose mercy. And this cleric was explaining, and that's how it is. That how, that's how it is with Allah, is that Allah is merciful. And it was very touching. I mean, he, he told it well, uh, because these parents who were so grief-stricken were now choosing the way of mercy. Now, in, in the Islamic faith, there's like 99 characteristics of Allah that you're supposed to be. And what the gal begins to talk about, who's representing Christianity, she she affirms the story as beautiful and representing the attributes of God. But she makes a beautiful point, and this was her statement. She says, in that scenario, you have two very godly characteristics, but in that picture of Allah, Allah can either be mercy or justice, but Allah cannot be both. In Christianity, because of the nature of the Trinity, we have the Son of God who is the full divine presence of God in human form. So that God, the Heavenly Father, maintains justice. 
God will be who God is. But because of the Trinity and what we have in Jesus, mercy is always present. So the character and the nature of God never skips a beat. I was like, this was a huge spiritual judo chop, in my humble opinion. And I was like, oh my gosh, that was brilliant. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We're not serving a God who has to back off to be a little bit more merciful or a God that has to step up and be a little more harsh. We have a Godhead found in the Father, Son, and, and, and Holy Spirit representing the complete character and the nature of God. It's a beautiful picture. Now, we're talking about practicing the presence of God. And, and, and the statement is the, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord our God is one. See, in this statement, Yahweh, which is the translation, Y-H-W-H, because it was so sacred that they didn't want to even include vowels. It was so sacred, so revered, that they would talk about it as the breath of God. So this was the closest thing that they could get to breathing in, exhaling, and inhaling the presence of God. So the word Lord is the word Yahweh. Yahweh. It just feels like God is as near as our last and our next breath. So it's a very personal God, which is different from being a private God. Private is something that I don't share with you, but personal means it has affected my life in such a significant personal way that I would love to be able to tell you the difference it's made, he's made in me. Now, I would say making God Lord over our life often involves a breaking process, much like a horse needs to be broken so that it can take the bit and the bridle and actually take on a saddle. But if you don't break a horse, it's going to buck you off. I think in all of us, we need to be broken in a good way. We tend to want to resist hardship. We, we tend to want to resist friction, except it's only in those moments that we find our dependency and our trust in God alone. This is where the presence of God comes in times of need. And so it, it's a very personal. Now the question becomes, how can we then begin to practice the presence of God? So we're not just saying, oh, it's not just making God our Savior, but our Lord. And so uh, we're, we're not just trying to avoid hell, but living with the same desire, the same desire that we have of the ambition of finding a spouse or uh, of starting a family or, or raising our children or building a career or seeking deep friendship. This is the kind of lordship that we're invited into. And this is the practice of God. Now, flip over just a couple of pages to Deuteronomy 8. At the title of this section says, Do not forget the Lord, which is a funny thing to include when there's 613 commands in the first five books of the Bible. There's a section that simply says, Don't forget the Lord. I, I, kind of like, isn't that what the whole point is anyway? And, and, and yet, in this five small verses, we have this picture 
uh, of what it means. Let me see if I include it. Oh, no, I didn't get this one in. Uh, it says, um, let me just go through. So Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Again, we're talking about practicing the presence of God. And this section of scripture comes, do not forget the Lord. That's not like a suggestion. That feels like a mandate. But he says, be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised uh, an oath to your ancestors. In other words, he's asking the question, how careful or attentive are you to follow what you do know that God desires. It's really easy to live a faith that says, I'm not sure of God's will for my life. Fine. But do what you do know to do. How careful and attentive are we at following what we do know to do? If you want to experience the presence of God, start there. It, it, it can't hurt. Um, because there is this beautiful spiritual inheritance that God has given us as well as the people of God in ancient Israel. And so he's like, how careful are you to respond to the prompts of God's spirit? And it's really important to understand that God is not a tolerant God because God loves us too much to tolerate us. So there is something that God wants to do in the active nature of God to interrupt us. It is really detrimental when I hear this mantra in our society today about being tolerant. But God isn't tolerant. If God was tolerant, there would be parts of our life that he wouldn't love. And God is in love with us, and so he doesn't tolerate. It's like saying this. Oh, I just love the New Testament. I just love Jesus because Jesus is all about love and mercy and peace. But let me ask you, if you just want to remove the judging nature of God, do you really want to live in a world that allows for abuse of power? Or should someone be accountable for that? Do you want to live where vulnerable people are exploited? Do you want to live with no accountability in a world that always has a surplus of food and yet people are in famine? Do you want to live in a world where human trafficking goes unchecked? Or do you want to live in a world where God is just and there's accountability? God is not a tolerant God but he is also a merciful God through his son, Jesus. There's this beautiful picture of what we're being invited into. And before our lives start to tailspin, God provides his Holy Spirit to put a check in our heart, to put a, 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 a sort of uh, a hesitation, a, a, a prompt, an interruption to keep our hearts from going further away from him. And he says, be careful in this first chapter. Practicing the presence of God starts with doing what we do know to do. Because if you're like me, I have lots of questions for God. I have lots of uncertainties. I even have lots of fears and doubts. Except that I do know what I can do today. I do know how I can practice a living faith today. And so I try and do that. 
But then he says in verse 2, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Verse 2, in other words, how do you remember God's faithfulness? How do you remember God's provision? Do you have a discipline, a mechanism, a fixed time to remember the graciousness of God? How do you remember God's guidance? How do you remember God's care? The line that he uses again and again is, don't forget, you you were once slaves in Egypt too. I mean, not you. I mean, that was like two generations ago. But don't forget, your whole people were enslaved. And I would say to us today, don't forget the faithfulness of God. So what causes you to remember? Oh, yeah, my education. It's just a gift. Yeah, I worked hard, but it's all God's grace. Oh, yeah, I, I've got this 401k. Or, yeah, I've got, I actually got my health. I've got shelter. I've got pantry. I've got food on my table. God, it's all your grace. I didn't actually deserve any of it. I was talking to Gary before the hour, and uh, Denise has got her what will be her third um, CT scan tomorrow morning, and she's just been wrestling with pancreatitis, among some other things, and just kind of lingering, and this has been gone on for two months now, and it occurs to me how often I take my health for granted. Do we have a, a, a fixed time? Um, a standing appointment with God, if you will, that we are remembering his faithfulness and provision because that's what he's saying. If you want to practice the presence of God, this is what it looks like. A couple more observations. Verse three, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna. Wait, 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 wait. Who among us wants to be humbled except God wants to humble us in a way that God can reveal God's self. He humbled you, causing you to hunger. God caused the hunger. God caused the struggle. So that God could feed you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had ever known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So what are we learning about our humbling circumstances right now? Are there moments that you feel inadequate out of control? Are there moments that we feel like, oh, okay, I can't do the math on this, or I'm lonely, I'm uncertain, because these moments actually can help us not forget the Lord. I actually get a little more worried when things are going so well, because prosperity has a way of losing our sense of urgency. I think it's why God, Jesus said time and again, I came for the poor, because the poor recognize their need. They re- they re- and, and all of a sudden, I like get a level of affluence. And I'm like, I'm good. I know how to comfort myself with a pint of ice cream. I'm good. I love french fries. I'm good. Whatever we use to comfort ourselves, right? And then, and then he says this part, that if you just are reading through Deuteronomy, I'm pretty sure you'll just gloss over. But listen to this verse um, in, in verse 4. I didn't include it. He says, um, your clothes, now again, your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. The same outfit for 40 years. That's what it just said. 
At what point do you realize a miracle is being performed when your sandals haven't given way? Think about that. That's a rather unremarkable miracle other than nothing wore out. No holes in the robe, no straps breaking on the sandals. Like, I'm wandering in the wilderness for 40 years and it says they did not wear out and your feet did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines a son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. We know that there was lots of complaining. We know that there was lots of hardship. We know that there were hunger pains. We know that there was lots of accusation and fighting and, and accusing leadership of being, except that God was like, no, I just, I just love you so much. I'm going to care for you. And you're not even going to realize that I'm caring for you. Holy cow. That to me feels convicting because it makes me want to take inventory of my life and go, I need to actually literally as try to say, count my blessings and start naming them one by one so that I can be grateful because I feel the sarcasm. I feel the negativity. I feel the despair. And he's like, just so you know, your feet never swelled. God has this way of revealing God's self time and again in supernatural and unremarkable ways. And I think that's what we're missing. One of the most unremarkable miracles is the feeding of the 5,000, which was actually closer to 15 to 20,000. Except that there was no jumbotron, there was no amplification, there was just fish and chips. And who would have realized the miracle was being performed? Because Jesus lifts up these baskets, starts praying, and then the 12 disciples start passing them out. Who recognizes where the food source is other than 12 disciples? Wait, didn't I just pass that down this row and it came back with as much as I just sent it down the row with? Like, at what point do the people realize that a miracle has been performed? God keeps showing up and we kind of are just oblivious. Isn't this, isn't this how it's supposed to be? Isn't, isn't clean drinking water just my inalienable right? Isn't clean drinking water just, or education, literacy, normal? Well, actually, it's part of the abundant life. It's God's provision. It's only by his grace. Holy cow. I want my heart to be resensitized to the things I've come to assume. That, to me, is part of how we begin to walk and recognize and practice the presence of God. So when, do, when we're careful to follow what we do know, when we practice remembering God's faithfulness in our lives, and when humbling circumstances help us to acknowledge our need, God sustains us. I just want to invite you to just bow your heads with me, and I just want to give you a couple of thoughts to pray through. And uh, it would be very easy to just kind of go, whoa, yeah, I guess I should be a little more attentive. I, I think maybe I need to remember or maybe take inventory. But let me just ask a couple of pointed questions as you think about practicing the presence of God. How, um, how sensitive, or maybe a better way to say, how responsive are you to following God's lead? Doing what you do know to do. We will never have all our questions answered. 
We'll never have our fears all abated. But that doesn't mean we have to be stuck. So the question is, how responsive are you to God's guidance, leading, prompts? As Aaron led us in an earlier prayer, I want to just give you a moment to remember God's provision, God's protection, God's faithfulness. Just simple inventory on things that you and I just assume or expect, maybe even feel entitled to. Is there an area of your life that you're being humbled or having to trust, feeling a little unable to control, and yet God's invited you to respond? Lord, will you speak to our hearts, reveal your thoughts? trust. Help us have a growing awareness of your presence so that we could be a reflection. Help us to have a new metric for what it is to say that we're doing well and we're okay. Thank you that you are unchanging. give you this time and we worship you in spirit and in truth.